Uh, Lord, uh, we know that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that you knit us together in our mother's wombs and you knew us uh, even before we were. And yet, um, you know us through and through. And though we are fearfully and wonderfully made, Lord, uh, oftentimes we wonder um, why it is we are the way that we are. And so, Lord, we pray in your mercy that you would intervene in our lives through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I've been thinking a lot recently of insults. Um, I really like them. And uh, in fact, I uh, am reading a book by a guy named William Irvine called A Slap in the Face. And it's not a book of insults, although there is actually a book out there full of really great insults. Um, But uh, A Slap in the Face, Why Insults Hurt and Why They Shouldn't. And um, that makes it sound like he's saying, oh, they really shouldn't hurt you. But actually what he comes to the conclusion of, they shouldn't hurt you, but they really do hurt you. And why um, insults hurt and why I think that that's uh, something worth talking about today. Um, I'm going to be doing a series probably in the fall on um, somebody just did, and his name just ran out of my head. Who did the sort of science and religion thing in the living room? Dennis, thank you, Dan Sampson. Uh, He did that, and more often than not, what we hear in our culture is, you know, guys like Christopher Hitchens and uh, Richard Dawkins and guys like that being over and against and all the scientific evidence. And if you have a scientific mind, you can't possibly be a Christian. And yet what goes wholly overlooked are social scientists, psychiatrists, uh, uh, philosophers, um, Is that you? (laughs) Go beep in somebody else's class. (laughs) Say that's that's an insult. insult. So, um, but what's uh, there's this great dearth of, and even amongst uh, neuroscientists and neurologists, this huge uh, field of social sciences that actually affirms what Christians believe, especially concerning human beings, the way that we are. And there are several TED Talks that you can watch on YouTube that that sort of affirm this. And it's very funny because a lot of these people who are doing TED Talks who are sociologists and psychiatrists will come to Christian things and they say, I'm not a Christian, but here I am. And yet what they will do is they'll articulate a Christian viewpoint on what human nature is, what what we're like, why we are uh, the way uh, that we are. And Um, William Irvine, uh, who is um, a professor of philosophy uh, in his book, A Slap in the Face, uh, says uh, says this about um, uh, insults. An examination of insults gives us valuable insight into the human condition. These are his non-Christian words, and yet he's already speaking our language. We are people who need to be among people. The problem is that once we are among them, we feel compelled to sort ourselves into social hierarchies. If we were wolves, we might accomplish this with a series of fights. Whoever defeated all comers and would, be the, would be the leader of the pack, and whoever was defeated by all would be the last to eat, if any food was left. But we are not wolves. We are instead creatures who have evolved, who have evolved oversized brains, and we have used these brains to develop language. As a result, we don't need to use our teeth or fists to sort ourselves into social hierarchies. We can instead use words strung together to form insults, and so we do. Um, And the thing about insults is that even in our society, uh, you know, there's a fine line between uh, someone, you know, we can say, oh, they're a little bit caustic, they're a little over the top, but there's a part of our society that really loves a good insult, especially, you know, 
repartee. I'll tell you, how old's the youngest person in here? I think I can tell the story. Um, some of y'all know about the Algonquin Round Table in uh, the 1920s. Some of the greatest writers and art types uh, used to gather at the Algonquin Hotel in Manhattan and swap witticisms, people like James Thurber and Dorothy Parker and, and those folks. And, uh, and um, th they would normally, uh, if, if you could be a fly on the wall, you would want to be there. And there's the story of Mark Connolly, the famous playwright who was sitting there eating his lunch. And another member of the Round Table came up and Connolly was famously bald and came up to Mark Connolly and began to rub his head and said, Connolly, your head is as smooth as my wife's bottom. And Connolly, without missing a beat, reached up and said, so it is, so it is. <laughs> we love that, right? It's a great story, right? Inappropriate, but great. And um, it's a great story. And um, society loves and values those types of people, to an, to an extent, as long as you're not the focus of the attack. And I got into trouble a couple years ago. Um, well, I've gotten into trouble more than once about <laughs> stuff like this. But um, a couple years ago, uh, I was at the beach uh, with some friends. And the only way to get, this happens often in uh, the Sea Islands of South Carolina, a lot of people have these fish camps. Uh, and the only way to get there is by boat. And so it's really an all-day affair. And if you get caught with the tides, it could be even longer. So. We were out there at the beach one day, and uh, there was a good friend of mine who is probably the skinniest man on the on the face of the earth. Right? And um, and when he was at the Citadel, normally when you're a knob at the Citadel your first year, they give you uh, nicknames. And uh, my friend's nickname uh, when he was a knob at the Citadel was Gandhi Knob uh, because he was just so <laughs> so thin. And uh, you know he would he would make fun of himself and 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 this and that and the other. Well. Uh, we were out there eating, and uh, and he was in his bathing suit, and we we're sitting there, and and uh, and I just remarked. I said, you know, watching my friend uh, eat, I said it's a little bit like a compassion commercial, <laughs> and um, and uh, this girl who was sitting next to me thought it was so funny that she would share it with the rest of the group, uh, although it was intended just to be within the two feet radius, and uh, let me tell you, he was not upset in the least. In fact, he sort of chuckled. But you know who went through the roof? His wife. His wife just lost it and launched into a very detailed critique of me in my bathing suit. And, um, and it was just lunchtime. We weren't pulling out till sunset. And, um, and so the rest of the day was, was chilly, uh, uh, to be sure. And not just that, but I actually had to ride back on the boat with her. Um, and so it was, and you could, you could feel it. And there was a friend of mine who went with me who did not know any of these people. And he said, I think she's really mad at you still. <laughs> and I said, I think that she is definitely mad at me. And what it required was for me to write a handwritten note apologizing and how inappropriate it was for me to say something like that. And uh, I should take into consideration other people's feelings. Now the hard thing about it is, on the one hand, it was really funny, but on the other <laughs> hand, uh, but the other, you know, you never know how people are going to respond to those things because people, at their very core, are terribly sensitive. Everybody is sensitive, really sensitive, and you know there are lots of tactics to dealing with insults. Some people can sort of, if you're like a Mark Connolly, you can just sort of diffuse it, and some people just sort of take it in stride, and uh, but that can be really damaging. I mean, I think if you in elementary school, if you had a nickname that you really hated. Right? Normally, like, you know, if your nickname was like 
pork chop or you know or butterball or something like that that you know you probably would not be into that and yet you know what do you do so you just kind of go along with it and hope one day that all of your friends get hit by a train or you <laughs> get skinny um, so uh, or you can you can really lash out against it and then people say whoa whoa you're 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 really overreacting and so it, it's really hard uh, to deal with with those insults and eventually in my situation there was reconciliation and things were fine and yet even when I'm around that couple today there's always a remnant of it right there, there's always a remnant because one of the things about insults is that they're judgments right they're judgments and sometimes they're judgments of the obvious but it's probably best to keep those things unsaid and yet I'm telling you the story today mm-hmm. right I'm telling you the story today because we kind of like it We kind of like it. And James uh, writes to the church 2,000 years ago. He says, um, "Now Now many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I don't like this part. For we all stumble in many ways, understatement of the year. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Tell us what you really think, James. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Isn't that good news? Isn't that that so comforting? Well, what James is getting to the bottom of, and I don't know if you know the background about this, uh, James' letter is written in, uh, actually in conjunction with what's going on in the book of Galatians, which is making an appearance in the lectionary these uh, past two weeks and will continue uh, through the weeks, where what was happening was that um, the church in uh, Galatia, where Paul had preached uh, the gospel, began getting visitors from Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, the very first heresy in the church were the Judaizers who said that um, you do need Jesus, but you need Jesus plus a lot of obedience. You need to do this, 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 this. And um, and of course, the church on whole said, that's not true. But a lot of these Galatians were believing what they were saying because they thought, well, they're from Jerusalem. Surely they're from the mother church. We should believe them. And St. Paul really uh, let them have it as well as the rest of the church. And in fact, at one point, went up to Jerusalem and confronted Peter over the whole issue. And James is actually in sympathy, though not in league with, he's in sympathy with the Judaizers. And what James' concern is, is that, that well, if he's, he's concerned, and rightfully so, well, what, what, are we, what sets Christians apart? How are they different? 
is having Jesus in your life make any difference? And St. Paul would say, of course it makes a difference. Of course it makes a difference. And James begins to outline in his epistle to the church uh, those things where he feel like he feels like it makes a difference. But you hear uh, not double talk in James. I would never say that. But you hear the struggle in James' own argument where he says, "Look, no one can tame the tongue. You can tame any animal on the face of the earth, and yet no human being has ever, ever been able to tame the tongue." Which means you and I will never ever be able to pull it off. I, you know, someone told me one time. Uh, they said, "Andrew, you know, I wish that I had your gift uh, of being able to say um, the wrong thing at exactly the right time." <laughs> and um, and they said, "Because you know what happens is I get in these these sort of conversations, and then you know the next day I rethink it in my mind. I said, oh, I wish I'd said this." And I have the very bad habit of like it starts coming out of my mouth, and I'm chasing after it to you know to try to put it back in. Um, and um, but no, there, there's no way uh, that we can, in our own strength, uh, try to manipulate our tongues in a way uh, that it's not going to come out. And Jesus even said, look, it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, it's what comes out. Um, and even if you're able to sort of keep it in, if you're able to internalize it, doesn't mean you're not thinking it. Right. And eventually it's going to be like a simmering pot and it's going to boil over. If you uh, have ever dealt with someone in your life who is very difficult, I'm sure that's never happened, who you might even live under the same roof with those per- that person. And, um, and you think, what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm just not going to say anything about this annoying habit or whatever it is. And uh, what eventually happens is um, you're like a simmering pot and eventually you're going to explode and the other person will say, whoa, 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 where did this, where did this all where did this all come from? And especially with the people who you're closest to, especially husbands and wives, uh, I know, and I'll use my own wife as an example as opposed to somebody else's wife, um, (laughs) nobody can make me feel more loved and more validated and more secure in who I am here on this earth than my wife. And yet at the same time, no one knows exactly what to say to torpedo me and send me down to the depths of the bottom of the sea like my wife. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, especially the closer you are to someone, the more you have the ability to use those barbs and use them to maim. Uh, maybe you've, ever, you've been in an argument with somebody and you will say something, not necessarily to make a point, but you're saying it because you know it will destroy them. You know that you're, you're sending a shot across the bow, or you're just—it's—it's it's hitting home uh, altogether. And uh, and hopefully afterward, you think that wasn't very nice, and and you go up and you apologize. But if there's any change uh, that happens, it has to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I did a class a while back on a guy named Jack Ravenscroft, uh, whose nickname was Mad Jack Ravenscroft, who was a lawyer in Williamsburg, Virginia in the colonial days. And uh, he was famous for contempt of court. Uh, Not the kind of lawyer you want arguing for you, uh, because they would use profanity so much in the courtroom. And he couldn't help it. And he would even really, really try to do it. 
and um, and his mother was a very devout woman, and so he would go to Bruton Parish Church there in Williamsburg, and he thought, you know, if I go to church and I just try extra hard, maybe I'll stop cussing. You know what would happen? They'd say that Mad Jack would make it for like a week, and he would do really well, and then something would happen where he would just blow his top and completely lose it. And then one day while he was... Um, riding through the, he had some land outside of Williamsburg up the peninsula. And while he was riding out there, he ended up hearing a sermon by a guy named Devereux Jarrett, who was an open air preacher, Anglican minister uh, there in Virginia. And a lot of the colonial churches that are there were started by Devereux Jarrett, if you ever get to visit them. And, um, and after hearing it, he began, he was riding to his property and he really began to think on it and he said by the time he arrived at his property he knew that he was a Christian. And one of the things that the people noticed in Mad Jack's life is that he stopped cussing. And he didn't, he didn't even try. It was actually alarming to him. He writes in his diary that it was alarming to him that he had stopped cussing. Uh, he thought that, that, um, that it just he didn't notice at all. Um, it's also a very fun irony that he went on to become the first Episcopal Bishop of North Carolina. But the only way that that transformation happens in our lives is, is by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, even in the lives of those whom we love, because we find ourselves more apt to be able to wound uh, those whom we love and, and do it willfully. You know, in the situation with my, my friend Gandhi Nob, um <laughs> I wasn't trying to wound anybody. I, I wasn't being willful in, uh, in, in my really trying to dismantle him. Uh, but nonetheless, that's, that's how uh, it's received. And um, you know, one of the things that, um, that will stick with you if, if, uh, if you think back on your childhood are those moments where you were Insulted. In fact, you might be thinking of something now that happened this week uh, where you were insulted uh, either one way or the other. And uh, I was at dinner one night with, uh, there was a family that I was very close to. I was one of three boys and they had three girls and we were all very close. And I was over at the house and the father in the house uh, was a, a, went to the Citadel and he was a wrestler. And you know he was still kind of a hulking man. And um, I'd never had a bad meal in that house. The, the mom was an amazing cook. And I was trying to, um, to convey that about how wonderful the meals were in this house. And so as I pushed back from an especially good meal from the dinner table, I said, gosh, if I ate dinner every night in this house, I'd be big as a whale. And he looked at me and says, I eat dinner every night in this house. <laughs> well, uh, it was not meant to, to wound or to inflict, but, but again, that's the way he received it. Uh, but he, he got a good chuckle out of it. But one of the things that, um, that I find in the church that is particularly discouraging is the tendency of, um, of people to not treat each other uh, very well, especially concerning uh, the tongue. Um, at our former parish, one of the things I joked about is that we had a very long prayer list that we would publish. And, you know, what it would say things like, you know, pray for so-and-so deployed overseas. Very good, you know, in the military. And it also say, pray for our expectant parents. And then we would put the, and all very good. Uh, but what it became was sort of the gossip column. And so you could kind of like, you'd say, uh, and we would only put first and last names. We would never print first names, which I thought was very funny. Uh, and so people would, would start to talk about it, but it was all in the name of, of praying. Hey, I have a prayer request for you. Did you know? 
<laughs> uh, did you know this? And, uh, and I've mentioned it before, but in our former parish, there was this really wonderful website called mugshots.com. And, and on it, you could get on every day. And it was the, I mean, how many, what, 10,000 hits a day, at least, in Beaufort, which meant that the city population of Beaufort was 15,000, and 10,000 people were getting on every day and looking at it. You could look at the arrest record and the mugshots and what they were being charged with and all of those other things. And, um, and it, it became part of the prayer list. Um, you know, it, uh, you, could, you could be able to, to get to see it. But what, what became, start, why people loved it, but what was so startling about it was um, people loved it because you would get on and you would see who? People you know. And sometimes there would be a sense of self-satisfaction. There was a judge once that got caught uh, driving under the influence, and everybody kind of felt good about that. And, um, and then, um, but then, uh, you know, but then you'd see your neighbor and you think, oh, you know, that's, that's terrible. Or you'd, you'd see a friend. And, I mean, there's a part of you, though, that's still sort of, like, that's kind of, uh-huh. And, um, but then uh, you'd start seeing people getting caught for things and, you know, a friend that left the same party as you did just 15 minutes earlier, and uh, and you begin to see the the only difference between you and them is they got caught. They got caught, and what James is talking about, and I think what, the point that William Irvine is talking about is that what the tongue is able to do is it attempts to create a pecking order and to create a hierarchy, and James writes rightfully so that. Um, my brothers, show no partiality, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. That's kind of funny. Have you not then made the distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But if you have dishonored the poor man, are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? What James is not saying is that there's a problem with being rich and that everybody should be poor. But what he's talking about is differentiation, that one of the things that gossip and the tongue does is it begins to create this hierarchy whereby some people are set apart higher uh, than, than others. And, um, you know, it, there are some people, though, that I think that have become kind of sacrosanct in our society. So when you do get online and you see that Judge so-and-so has been put into prison, you kind of laugh at that. Um, or you think, you know, like with Bernie Madoff, remember when he went to jail, like everybody's like justice, right? Justice. But, you know, if you heard, uh, but there was another interesting thing that came out a couple weeks ago about Monsanto, you know, the evil agricultural genetic modifying, I'm just I'm embellishing here a little bit, but anyway, uh, cause I'm sure some of you have stock in Monsanto. So, but Monsanto had a lawsuit where this Indiana farmer uh, and of course, they're famous for creating crops, soybeans in particular, that are resistant to the best weed killer, which is also theirs, Roundup. So what you can do is you can plant Monsanto beans, have the crop grow up, you can spay, spray Roundup on it, and it will only kill the weeds. It's a pretty good idea. Well, when you sign a contract with Monsanto, if you're a farmer, you say that you will only you will only use the beans that you get from them for the harvest of that year and you won't recycle the beans 
right? You won't you won't have any over for seeding for the next season. But what uh, this one farmer in Indiana did, he had a pretty good idea. He went down to the local soybean auction uh, where there were the brokers were, and what he did is he bought random soybeans, which statistically he thought at least some of them are going to be Monsanto beans. Because you can't, right, so yeah, so he so he bought these beans and he and he brought them back and then and Monsanto sued this guy and said you can't do that that's that's clever by half, and um, but it was very funny um, hearing the way that it was broadcast. So I feel like most people I talked to with Bernie Madoff said he needs to go to jail, but then you start to talk to people about the Indiana farmer, they're like he's just a farmer, right? You, you know we got to support our farmers. You know you got so it, it's very funny like. Um, the fact that, that we'll classify people where if you are, of course, running a Ponzi scheme, we, we shouldn't like you, but you understand what I'm saying. But, you know, lawyers tend to be pretty good feed for fodder um, uh, in jokes, but there are not a lot of farmer jokes because they're a respectable class. Uh, but even in the church, uh, what we have and what St. James is saying to us is that there is an issue uh, of, of partiality. My grandfather uh, had all kinds of really fun little sayings growing up. Uh, that were always meant to encourage, like, it only goes darkest just before it goes pitch black. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, the, the Lord will provide or not. Uh, <laughs> and um, so one of the things that he used to say, he used to ask, he said, you know what makes the world go round? Favors. Favors make the world go round. And, and he's, he's right. Uh, but... Uh, and so what we tend to do is we tend to arrange ourselves and gather people around us that, that basically affirm who we are. And there's on the one hand nothing wrong with that. Uh, but on the other hand, what James is saying is it's probably really good to have people around you that will challenge you where you need to be challenged. Not in an insulting way, but in a way that is actually healthy. Iron sharpening iron. Someone actually able to look at you and your flaws and you to be able to receive that. And that is next to impossible. Because when you grew up and you lived at home, you know, when you're younger, it really doesn't matter. And once you got to be 17, 18, when you're in high school, senior in high school, um, and your parents would say things like, Andrew, you need to do this, you need to do that, what are you thinking? I'm out of here. I'm out of here in a year. Like, I just need to hold on for a year. And then you get off to college and your roommates say the same thing about you. They have the same diagnosis and they say, you know what, you're a slob. Or, you know what, you need whatever the judgment might be. But then we, all right, I'm getting a new roommate. <laughs> yeah, you get a new roommate. Um, but then, uh, so in some sense, you can kind of uh, position yourself and arrange yourself. Uh, but if you've ever gotten married, can't get a new roommate. Right? You can't say I'm out of here in a year. Um, I mean, I suppose you could, but 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 you really can't. And um, and so what you have uh, in marriage is actually someone who loves you, knows you to the bottom, knows who you are at your absolute worst, is able to diagnose it and in a precision type manner, like a laser beam and like a surgical tool, which, which hurts. Uh, and even those things that you might be wholly unaware of. When I was a kid, we rode dirt bikes a lot and we would be out there all day and we'd wreck them honestly on purpose and, and you know, we would be out of control. And, uh, and when we'd come to the house, my mom would say, you are not coming in this house until you go take a bath, go. And um, you know, I was thinking, you know, what are you talking about? I've, 
I understand I'm a little dirty, but like I'm fine, I'm fine. And uh, but if you've ever had like a scratch or a cut or anything like your leg, and as you ease yourself in the bathtub, all of a sudden that which you were completely unaware of becomes made known pretty quick, right? And it hurts, <laughs> right? It hurts, and yet. Uh, the awareness of it is actually beneficial to you, and being in the bath is actually beneficial to you as well. And yet, um, it's a hard word uh, to receive uh, from anybody, uh, even those whom you're closest to, to say, hey, uh, this this is an issue. And our reaction is always going to be defensive. It's always going to be, uh, I don't want to hear this. I want a new roommate. Um, I, I really don't. Uh, want to change. And so um, what a lot of people will find themselves in close relationships saying is, why can't you just be more more like me? (laughs) If you were more like me, everything would be fine and great and wonderful. And um, and so Lauren and I, what we've uh, taken uh, to do, and uh, and I recommend this um, for everybody, is um, one of the things that uh, one Eskimo society does is that um, they have what are called song duels when they have a conflict in the village. Uh, consider the song duels of the Eskimos of the Central Arctic. At community festivals, one man would initiate a duel by stepping forward and singing a song that contained insults and accusations of another man. The accused man would sing back his reply, which would include more insults and accusations. The insults in question, though, had to be couched in humor. The encounter had to be in a spirit of good fun, and even though the underlying grievances might be quite serious, songs would be sung back and forth until one singer was laughed down by the audience, was completely humiliated, or failed to reply. I wish you'd empty the dishwasher more often. Um, I just feel like you're being insensitive to my needs. uh, it, it actually does make it is it works actually, uh, except what William Irvine doesn't tell you then is the next chapter he tells you about this song do in the same community where uh, days afterward one of the singers murdered the other guy, um, so it didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work. The song was a little too good, um, uh, but there has to be some sort of way uh, for us uh, to be able to communicate with one another what is actually real and uh, and heartfelt without the other person receiving it as an insult as impossible as that may seem. And so, I mean, what it has to do is the Holy Spirit has to be able to break through and and to be able to um, to do the work that that He is able to do, and and for us uh, to be able to trust. And him in that. And so one of the things that as I've been reading this book and, and walking through the letter of James, what I've realized is I am really sensitive. I'm I'm overly sensitive. And even as as someone who preaches justification by by grace through faith, you know, that there's there's nothing that, that you can do to justify yourself before God or make you righteous. Like when fewer people show up for like my class or when fewer people show up for like my sermon, I think, oh gosh, what did I do wrong last time? Right? which is totally ridiculous. It's completely and totally uh, ridiculous unless somebody comes up to me and says, hey, was your last class really bad because I thought there would be more people here. Uh, people have done that before too. Uh, because our hearts are, are predisposed uh, to go into that direction and we're all prone to be navel gazers and to wonder uh, what's wrong with me and even in, in a joking fashion uh, to take very seriously uh, what is being said. So to bring it full circle, um, what I had to realize about this, um, and I have to be very careful how I say this, 
what I realized about the situation where I, I made the comment about my skinny friend um, was that um, his wife was incredibly sensitive uh, to the fact that her husband was very skinny and um, and that um, my wife helped me to understand this uh, is that um, you know herself you know it um, you know wives just don't like People going around saying, "Hey, your, your husband looks so great," and you're like, "Well, how do I look? How, how do I look?" Um, and and so that's that's what it, it was. It was for. Her. I think she had just had a baby too, which is like a certain beastliness to that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, but he he was always skinny. So yeah, I think that she had just had a baby too, and so that, that was. That was so. I had to. I had to understand that where it was coming from is, you know, my first initial reaction was like, this lady's just crazy, like she's just crazy and she's oversensitive. Uh, but then, really, uh, once I started to think about it, I can, I can understand where she was coming from, and and why uh, she was upset and why what I said was was actually very offensive, um, and I should um, keep it to myself or, or just write a book about it <laughs> and make money off of it. So um, it it helps to laugh about this stuff. Uh, and, and I would recommend the book, but this is really is just a teaser class on something I'm going to be doing in the fall where I open it up a little bit more and get into the sort of social science of it all and, and why we do what we do and, um, and why we really are hardwired uh, to be this way. And um, that nature actually uh, shows that we are people in, in great need uh, of a savior. And something that really drove this home in the midst of this was some, but we were talking about in my Monday night Bible study, we were talking about judgment. And, um, and how it is that God will judge us and at what standard. And uh, someone once said to me, you know, Andrew, what if um, somebody followed you around with a tape recorder? You didn't know about this person until you got to the judgment seat of Christ. And then they're like, oh, by the way, I've been following you around and, and I've recorded everything that you've said. But actually, I've only recorded things that you've said concerning advice or talking about a standard of something, or when you, you had some sort of helpful comment uh, for other people, those are the only things uh, that I have recorded. And, uh, and so um, all that you'll be judged on is that. And even then, I don't know about y'all, but I, you know, do as I say, don't do as I do. You know, if, if I were to be judged even against my own standard by the way that I expect other people to live and behave, I'm toast. I am toast. And, uh, and that's always a, a good reminder. And when you get to a place where you're, you're able to be honest with yourself about yourself, uh, that's when you can laugh and that's when you can really lean on the grace of God uh, and pray that, uh, that he transforms you. Questions, comments, concerns? Really good book, William Irvine, A Slap in the Face. Um, good title too. So let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, um, we are all broken individuals, and uh, Lord, um, we've all experienced um, the inability to tame our tongues. And Lord, uh, sticks and stones uh, may break our bones, but words sure do hurt, and they pierce, and they wound in a way that is lasting and stays for a long time. And so, Lord, I even pray right now that if there are people now who are thinking about things that happened in their childhood or even yesterday uh, that really wounded them, that you would enter into that place and that you would do a healing work uh, in their life and not that they would 
look at, at ways to sort of counteract it, but Lord, that they would give themselves over to you and that you might uh, heal them for their good, but above all, for your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen.